we're running just a few minutes early, but whilst we have everybody here, we'll, we'll commence because it allows us then to get some uh, extra time to be able to ask some questions. Um, maybe if I could start then just by uh, welcoming yourself, um, David and Rebecca, you're, you're welcome to our committee today, and we appreciate your attendance here uh, to discuss what is for us a very critical matter. Um, the impact of Brexit is going to be most harshly felt here in the north of Ireland, and I guess that is probably one of the reasons why the majority of us here didn't support Brexit and don't want to see it being implemented. Um, the majority here are uneasy with Brexit and especially the significant impact that it is going to have on trade and on opportunities and indeed on communities uh, right across the north. Uh, last week we met with um, Vice President Sefcovic and heard from him and the EU's willingness to work flexibly uh, with the UK to progress and to move forward with the process, especially around the protocol. Uh, and I trust that today we will likewise uh, hear some discussions about the opportunities and the progress that we can make in that matter. I think the, the norm will pass over to yourselves to make some opening remarks, and then we can open up then into some question and answer uh, and have some discussion after that. And I'll pass over to yourself. Great. Well, well thank you very much, Chair. Um, it's a delight uh, to be here. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. And, um, uh, looking forward to, to a good discussion and, and some, some good questions. Um, and as you mentioned, I have my colleague from uh, Cabinet Office with me, uh, Rebecca Ellis, who is responsible for this at uh, official level. Um, if I could just say a, a few things to start, and I prom promise not to take too long because I think the questions are the important part of this. Um, but if I could just say a few things to situate where we are at the moment on the protocol and, and where we're going. Um, I think first thing is just to, to recall uh, that the, the protocol was a, a huge compromise by us to protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. It's a, it's a compromise that we made willingly as part of the uh, the Brexit negotiations, but it is pretty exceptional, and I think sometimes that's that's forgotten, that we, we agreed to apply EU law and we agreed to control the movement of goods within uh, the United Kingdom. And if that highly unusual situation is going to work, um, it's got to work in a pragmatic and proportionate way. It can't be treated as uh, just any other external border of the single market. I think sitting here today, the other thing to, to note is that you know, precisely because it was so unusual that when I and Prime Minister negotiated this, we thought that it was essential to have a democratic component in the way that it, it worked. It is only a component, uh, but there's an important role for this assembly, clearly, uh, in the, concert, in the um, consent vote. Um, and that democratic... Uh, ability to determine whether the arrangements in the protocol are fundamentally acceptable or not is an important part of the, the total construct and the way that it works. And I think that, that needs to be said. And it's why we've thought it right to involve the executive as fully as we can in the withdrawal agreement structures and so on. So it is a delicate balance, the protocol. It is a compromise. It's there to support the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. That's not just uh, the North-South 
uh, aspect of it and the very important, indeed essential, element of keeping a, uh, an open border on the island of Ireland. It's also about east-west and uh, the integrity of the institutions here. And the protocol does recognise all those dimensions in the, uh, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And if it's going to work, it's got to work in a way that supports uh, all those things. It's got to respect things that are in the protocol, the fact that, the that Northern Ireland is an integral part of the customs territory of the United Kingdom and bear as lightly as possible on the everyday lives of people in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the fundamental place of Northern Ireland in the internal market of the, the UK. All those are important parts of the protocol, just as other parts are. And keeping that balance uh, is extremely important. Um, third point, we have been implementing the protocol um, and we, we reject suggestions that we have simply sort of ignored it or not tried. Um, we've, de we've delivered four new IT systems from scratch. We'll be spending up to you know, the best part of, of uh, half a billion pounds over the next year or two in schemes to support it, holding new facilitations to make it work. Um, we provide access to some of our databases to, to the European Union to make it work. And indeed, the problems that are arising are problems of implementation, not of non-implementation. And I think that is important to, to recognise. Um, but with all that, you know, we have problems. And I think the fundamental diagnosis we would make is that the, the zero-risk approach to how the rules should operate is in practice privileging one part of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and the protocol over the others. And that's what underlies what we perceive to be a perception that there's been a, a shift in Northern Ireland's place in the Union, underlying the trade patterns changes and some of the uh, societal and political uh, disruption we've seen in, in different ways uh, in recent months. So those are the, those are the issues. We're seeing those, those sort of trade changes and the impact is being felt. Um, it is being felt in different ways, that's clear, but it, but it does, we are, picking, we are picking that up quite clearly in people's daily lives. Um, so there's, there is a problem, and I, I, I haven't personally yet, though I might today uh, speak to people who have said there is no problem with the way the protocol is, is being implemented. There's a range of views, but nobody thinks that I've spoken to um, from a wide range of political and civil society business opinion. Nobody thinks it's working um, perfectly as it should. All have suggested improvements. Um, and it's in that context that we have put forward improvements. We've put forward a, a dozen papers with detailed proposals, and I can go into the details of those in questioning if it's, if it's useful to. Um, it's welcome that the EU um, on the 30th uh, suggested uh, some further flexibilities and solutions, though we haven't yet had anything in writing on most of those, which is, is, is part of the difficulty. But obviously we're, we, we would like to discuss and we're open to discussing all those things. But it is true all the same that the current process isn't dealing with the fundamental problems and there are underlying difficulties, and that's why we say we need to find a new balance in the way the protocol is working um, if we are going to, to manage it. Um, 
there always will need to be a tailored treaty relationship between us and the EU covering Northern Ireland, that's clear. Uh, we need to find arrangements that are sensible, proportionate, have consensus so they can work. Um, and fundamentally, we need to find a way to deliver that. We need to find a way to ensure that goods flow as freely as possible between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, where they're destined for Northern Ireland consumers, and that goods moving on into Ireland are treated in an appropriate way so as to protect the single market. So to summarise and, and wrap up, um, you know, the situation as it is, is in our view not consistent with the careful balance that's in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. It's not the way the protocol should be being implemented and that, that is a political reality that needs to be acknowledged and we, we can't ignore it. We will always prefer a consensual approach to solving this question uh, and I think there are ways of finding a way through and delivering that. Uh, that's the responsible thing to do in the interests of everybody in Northern Ireland and that's how we hope to proceed but obviously all options remain on the table. Um, so as I said yesterday we're considering next steps. We will set out our approach to Parliament uh, in a considered way uh, during this month. And final thing um, to say with my sort of wider responsibilities looking at UK-EU relationships more broadly is that I think the prize on offer for us, if we can find this new balance, is that we will um, set the relationship between us and the EU onto a different trajectory. It is a little bit tense at the moment. Nobody wants that. And I think the, the protocol issues are at the core of that. If we can move on, if we can find a way that works, we can get... UK EU relations onto the friendly, collaborative, cooperative, mutually beneficial trajectory that is what we wanted to see and where we would like to go. So there's a big prize if we can get this right, uh, but it does need both sides to take the situation seriously and fix the problems that currently exist. Okay, thank you very much for those uh, opening remarks. Uh, it's appreciated to give us the context for our conversation and our discussion. Uh, we'll move on to questions, and I know that almost all members have indicated that they would like to speak, so we will try and work through uh, questions uh, as quickly as we can. I I'll begin, uh, and maybe in some ways, in summarising some of the remarks that you've made, that you can, you're saying that the deal isn't being implemented uh, as you thought. Uh, you highlight that there are problems and issues, and you do say that there are ramifications and impacts as a result of that. But can I ask, it's your deal. If your deal is so shoddy, why did you negotiate it? So I think it's the, the underlying problem is that the way it's being implemented at the moment doesn't reflect the balance that we you know, believe we agreed and, and did agree, and the way it's, it's being, impl it, it, it being implemented doesn't reflect that, that balance. Um, we we need to find a way of managing you know, principally the good movements of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland in a way that's consistent with the overall uh, aims of the, the protocol, which is able to support the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement to, to minimise disruption to everyday lives and, and so on. And if those movements of goods and uh, aspects associated with them are taking place in a way that undermines the protocol, then it, it is 
it is um, undermining its purpose. It's not working. So uh, we have to try and implement it in a way that reflects the balance that's there in the protocol. For example, Article 5 says the Union Customs Code applies. Article 6.2 says we'll make uh, efforts to ensure that uh, to minimise checks uh, at the ports of Northern Ireland. And those two things have to be read together. If you just read the first, then you're not respecting the balance. And finding the right balance is a political question, and we, we, we don't think we've found the right balance yet. And, and was there, as part of the negotiations, not the, the sort of the forward-looking or, or vision to say that they could be taken out of context or that there would be a way to resolve that or discuss that? I mean, it, it seems to be that there are substantial problems from something that was negotiated and that there was an agreement on. It just seems that there are massive amounts of problems afterwards, which seems quite inconsistent with working to come up with an agreement. So I, I, I don't think it's right to, to look at the, the protocol as a sort of definitive text that was, you know, was, was there in, in October 2019. There's nothing more to say. I mean, it's very clear from reading the text that, that, that that's not the case. Um, for example, the whole concept of goods at risk, uh, which is obviously at the core of some of the problems in movements between GB and, and Northern Ireland, um, that whole concept remains to be worked out. And indeed, it was very controversial in the talks during 2020 that Michael Gove led. So that is an explicit, uh, that's one, one very clear area uh, where, you know, where you come to in that negotiation massively affects the, the, the way the protocol is meant to work. We also, of course, at that point didn't know whether there was going to be a free trade agreement between the UK and the EU or not. And that is the fact that there is, is a huge and positive change to that, that context. But it's not... I think reasonable to say, given that the situation has changed in various ways and given that part of the protocol you know, remains to be worked out, that it is a definitive text and as of October 2019, that's it and there's nothing more to say. It, it isn't that sort of document. In, in terms then maybe of the um, SPS checks, it, it, you know, uh, currently you know, 85% of them could be removed if there is some form of agreement between the UK and the EU. But is it a case that the British government is um, feeling that free trade agreements with third-party countries are more important than uh, dealing with the SPS checks that there is between East and West in terms of the UK? So I think they're of um, you know, similar levels of importance, to be honest, and they all flow from the, the fundamental fact that um, uh, Brexit was about re-establishing control of, as far as possible, over our own laws and our own rules, and that applies to SPS and agri-food rules just as it applies to, uh, to everything else. I think the problem we've got is that, you know, the, at the moment the EU only seems to envisage one solution to this problem and their solution to all these problems is why don't you just adopt our rules and then there won't be a problem and I, I don't think that's a, a sort of reasonable approach to take uh, we are accused of being ideological uh, on this question but but it seems to me equally ideological to say the only solution is you adopt our laws and that that is that is a fairly ideological position to take, I think. Um, 
There are other solutions, and you know, we have proposed an agreement uh, based on equivalence. We have sent in a document to that effect, and we'd like to discuss it. Uh, we were clear in the negotiations last year we wanted an equivalence mechanism with the EU, but it was it was refused. I think we've this is one of these areas where we've got to find a tailored solution that um, is capable of reducing the level of, of processes. And, you know, intellectually, that's, that's perfectly possible. It's getting the politics in the right place that uh, seems to be more difficult. Okay. I, I know that last week when um, Vice President Sefcovic was with us, he had suggested that, that there could be uh, an acceptance of um, the, the, the sort of agreement and equivalence until such times as there was divergence. So, I mean, certainly there seems to be a sense that there is a middle ground that could be moved to to help us in the short term. Is that something that you feel is viable or an option? I mean, I, I can certainly see, um, uh, you know, kind of room for discussion between the, the positions. We, we haven't quite got into a discussion on this. Um, you know, we are not going to agree to... Uh, dynamic alignment that is 100% clear um, but um, there is you know there, there, there's room for discussion and we think uh, the the, um, the mechanism we've put forward that, that recognizes the high standards on both sides and um, ensures that uh, if there are changes um, that can be reflected in the you know the level of processes that, that apply is 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 reasonable and you know we would like to talk about that uh, but but it's not happened yet. Okay. Um, look, finally, for myself, then we we have a chorus of doomers here uh, in the north that will uh, find the downside of everything uh, without the balance of looking at positives, and I'm sure. Uh, some of that chorus will, will sing to you shortly. But in terms of the positives, do you see any positives out of the protocol for business and for trade here in Northern Ireland? And you've met with uh, many of the different sectors, many of the different groups and organisations who I'm sure aren't meeting you to talk about negatives. They're wanting to see opportunities. Do you, you know, what, what opportunities do you see, and, and how are you, as a government, actively pursuing uh, those positivities? And I mean, do you see room, for example, for um, a trade conference that we could uh, do in partnership with the EU and the UK to be able to to sell the position that Northern Ireland finds itself in, if that helps us to deliver uh, new trade, new enterprise, new jobs? So um, I think. You know, the, 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 the positive thing about the protocol and the reason we agreed it was that it was, you know, it, it was intended and, and is clear uh, on the face of it that it's intended to support the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. It was designed to provide stability after the Brexit so that business understood, uh, you know, in a, in a durable way. Um, you know how things were were going to work, and you know there is a set of trade-offs, and uh, you know ensuring that there are no uh, there's no infrastructure and checks on the, the the land border is is extremely important. I was down in Newry this morning, and it's it's very obvious that um, uh, you know that has been extremely important to the uh, the the economic success in in that area, and um, you know we we think it's absolutely essential that that is is maintained. And it's good that we found a way 
to do it, but it, it, it is a question of finding the, the right balance. There are aspects of the protocol that, as far as I can see, are, you know, are not particularly challenged and are working well. And as I've said, there, would need, there always will need to be a treaty framework, so, but we've got to get the, the core of it right. Um, an investment conference, I mean, anything we can do to encourage uh, further investments into to Northern Ireland, of course, we're, we're very happy to work with the Commission or anybody else on making that, that work. I think we, we will have plans of our own to encourage <laughs> that as well, but uh, the more the merrier, really. Thank you for those for, for myself. I'm going to open up to the committee now and I'm going to go to the Deputy Chair of the Committee, to John Stewart. So, John, over to yourself. Yep, thank you, Chair. Um, hopefully I'm not one of the doomers that the Chair refers to. I'm sure he would never accuse me of being that. But um, you're very welcome today, Lord Thrust. Thank you very much for coming along. I'll not rehash the Ulster Unionist Party's opposition to the protocol. It's on record. We intend to meet with yourself and the negotiating team again next week. And we look forward to articulating our concerns and putting forward our alternatives to you. Um, yesterday in the policy exchange meeting, and again today, you talked about a need for a rebalancing, and you're also talking about coming forward to bringing forward to Parliament potential mitigations. Can you set me out in detail what you see as the need and the areas that need to be rebalanced, and what those mitigations are going to look like coming forward to Parliament in the coming weeks? Sure. So. Um I'm afraid probably you'll have to wait till we, we make the statement uh, to find out the full details. But, but obviously there aren't many there aren't many days now till uh, till recess, so it won't be it won't be that far away. Um, I think I, I, I don't want to sort of repeat myself too much, but I think the the fundamental is finding a way to ensure that. Um, goods can move from Great Britain to Northern Ireland in, in a freer way than is possible at the moment. It's very clear there's a, a chilling effect at the moment because of the, you know, uh, the customs boundary, a uh, chilling effect on uh, GB companies wanting to trade with Northern Ireland. That, that, that is clear both anecdotally and in the figures. We're also seeing increases in trade between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland in both directions, which suggests that supply chains are uh, reordering and so on. And this, this has the political and economic consequences that we know about. So um, you know, the, the economic relationship between um, Northern Ireland and Great Britain is, is obviously super important. It's, it's essential. Um, Northern Ireland is, is oriented towards Great Britain economically, and um, we need to find ways that of operating that that allow goods to flow in a way which reflects that reality. And I think that that is the direction of travel, and those are the, the ideas that I, I think will be wanting to put on the table. Arising from that, Lord Frost, you've said um, that the protocol is having not only a societal impact in Northern Ireland, but an economic one. Um, and with that could lead to the triggering of potentially of Article 16. Can you set out for me the threshold, as you see it, for triggering Article 16 and what would need to happen for that to take place? So I think, I mean, I don't think it's possible to give a, a sort of trigger threshold. And um, obviously Article 16... Um, it's quite an unusual provision. There are only a couple of other treaties that have it, and there isn't a great deal of kind of international jurisprudence on the subject that tells you when there is a, uh, a problem or not. Um, I think it, it, so it, it's very sort of sui generis. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think it's possible for us to say, you know, X percent of increase in trade in, in, in one direction 
you know, is grounds for using Article 16 and why percent is not. I think you've, you've got to look at the total situation and, you know, what we are seeing is an increase in trade in both directions between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland and the chilling effects I referred to, to earlier. So, you know, that trade diversion is, is there and, and happening. Um, as we said, we, we keep all options on the table. You know, we're, we're not saying that a decision has been taken on this yet, uh, but all options are very clearly on the table. And, you know, we need to look at, um, you know, come to a, I suppose I would say, a, you know, a responsible assessment of the situation and the right way to proceed in the interests of everybody in Northern Ireland. One final point, Chair, if I may. Final point, Lord Frost, and thank you for the answer, is on the supply of medicines. Can you give us an update on those negotiations? As you know, it takes six months. Um, any supplier must give six months' notice to quit supplying medicines into Northern Ireland. That's mm. having an impact on the supply chain here and also on treatments. It is deeply alarming that that's happening. Can mm. you give us a full update up today? So Rebecca might want to, to add to what I, I say here. So medicines obviously is the one area where we have had a proposal back from the, the Commission. Um, it, it was, uh, we got it about a month after they told the FT it was coming, but we're glad to have it anyway, and uh, uh, we're, we're looking at it. Um, there are a couple of aspects of the problem. You know, one is the ability to license drugs across the whole of the UK, and one is the ability to ensure that they can move effectively into a viable market in, in, uh, in Northern Ireland. And, um, we're studying this carefully. It's, it's not quite clear that it, it solves the entirety of the problem, but, but it, is, it is quite complex. So we, we want to make sure we, we do that. There is some evidence that um, drug suppliers are beginning to uh, withdraw drugs or say they will withdraw drugs at the end of the year. Um, and the longer the uncertainty persists, the more of that we'll, we'll see. But Rebecca, do you want to add anything? Um, thanks, Lord Frost. As you say, we had a, a proposal um, in writing from the Commission very recent, relatively recently, and that was very welcome because I think we'd been having discussions with them on this for, for a good couple of months. Um, I think um, we had a session, uh, there was a sort of technical session with the Commission officials where we were able to sort of clarify a number of different aspects of the proposal. Um, that's then enabling the experts to be able to, to establish whether whether it, it does or doesn't appear to solve the problems in, 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 in what order and whether or not any changes are needed to it. So, so happily, those sort of detailed discussions can now happen and are happening, happening very rapidly because... Um, I think this has been an issue which, um, since we sort of started this phase of technical discussions at the end of March, we have been stressing as of particular urgency. So um, we were um, unhappy to have to wait so long, but, but now that we have a technical proposal, we are working on it as quickly as possible. Yeah, I don't think I need to stress how important an issue yeah. that is. Obviously, everything the protocol is massively, but the supply of medicines, undoubtedly. So thank you for urgency. 100%. Thank you, Chair. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Martina. And for me, all good, Anna, thank you. Um, you were Britain's chief negotiator for Brexit. Your eyes were wide open, and your fingerprints is on every page of the protocol, 63 pages of black and white. And you know that the people here in the North rejected Brexit, the majority of the people. And you also know that the majority of the parties here in this assembly, 
it represents the majority of the people out there on nine, nine separate debates here that they rejected Brexit but support the protocol. So can I ask you, um, do you not accept that the protocol gives the North access uh, to a single market, cost-free, and that the people here in the North who rejected <coughs> Brexit want to see the all-Ireland economy, things that you referred to, the Good Friday Agreement, upheld in all of its parts. Mm. Um, and it's, it just seems to me that you're talking about now balance, when surely someone who had their fingerprints on every single page of the protocol, you were the chief negotiator, you were not asleep at the wheel. You knew that there was going to be trade adjustments. The dogs in the street knew that there were going to be trade, trade adjustments, even the DUP. We supported you throughout this Brexit, cheerleaders for Brexit, their reaction to what happened. They knew that there was going to be trade adjustments and they felt you threw them under a bus. So um, I think I would, I would agree with some of what you've said. I wouldn't agree with all of it, uh, which is probably what you, you'd expect. Um, we, um, you know, you're absolutely right. I, I was the, the chief negotiator both in, in 2019 and, and 2020, and um, we agreed the protocol as the, the, the best option in a very complex situation. We knew that it was, as I said at the start, um, unusual in its construct, um, notably by applying EU laws without any sort of Democratic, normal democratic scrutiny, and that's why we we had to put the consent mechanism in to ensure that 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 was the case. So, as I said before, we we knew that a lot had to be worked out. Um, the protocol is a balance. Some of the, its provisions, you know, explicitly required detailed. Um, uh, sort of interpretation and negotiation afterwards, and how the uh, the the boundary between GB and AI work depended on those negotiations. Um, the, it's also a purposive document, where, as I said, you have to read all of the provisions together. You can't take one in isolation, and it's not reasonable to interpret it as a document which simply applies uh, requires an EU external border to be to be established and the fact that that is what's happening is is causing uh, um, many of the the core problems at the moment so I think it is you know the fact that trade diversion was a risk you're right to say that uh, that's exactly why article 16 is there and why trade diversion is is highlighted as one of the possibilities which justifies the use of article 16. so you know the protocol um it's a delicate balance it it has to be read in 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 total it's very unusual uh, and rests on a uh, sort of complex democratic foundations and a lot of it remained to be worked out and I think the core of the problem is that for various reasons um, it's not working out in the way that um, it should work 
if it's to achieve its purpose. And that's why we need to carry on the process of finding a balance so that it does achieve its purpose. I think that's the, the core of the issue here. Well, you'll forgive me from believing that the reason why it isn't working out is because you, the British government, is not implementing the protocol in full. Now, for those of us who come from the north of Ireland, from the Republican nationalist community, we believe that the, the next agreement that you honour in full will be your first. So there's a lot of scepticism in relation to, to some of the things that you're saying, particularly as the Brexit chief negotiator. And I was an MEP in the European Parliament and we witnessed and watched yeah. behaviour. You do, yeah, you remember that. <laughs> um, can I ask you in relation to the, um, the High Court uh, last week? Um, it said that the protocol does not uh, change the constitution position in the North. Now, you know I would like to have the constitutional position changed, but that's for another topic for another day. Um, you also told the Westminster Committee that the protocol, Article 1, does not change the constitutional position here uh, in the North. And therefore, uh, do you agree with the court in relation to, to the assessment? And do you also know that there was an opinion poll, there's been lots of opinion polls since Brexit and others uh, here last week, uh, taken or announced, and that opinion poll showed that only 6% of the people polled in the North they have only only six percent has trust in the British government, um, only six percent believe the British government, and therefore you need to realise that there's a degree of honesty and dishonesty. And I fear, or I have concerns, the project fear that was rolled out prior to the uh, the Brexit referendum, that there's some of that at play here. And I would ask you not to use this place in any agreement or exchange that you're having with the EU because people here do not trust you, they do not believe you and people here want to see the protocol implemented in full. Not everyone but the majority of the parties here and the majority of the people here. So I think on um, the first part of your question um, on the court case um, it has now been appealed, so I, I, don't think, I, I don't think it's right for me to go into the, the ins and outs of the, the arguments there, which, would, which will now have to be argued out in, in a different forum. I think what I can say is that you know, it is clear on the face of the protocol that um, uh, nothing in the protocol affects the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom. It's clear about Northern Ireland's place in the, the customs union. Um, it's clear about the case, uh, the place of Northern Ireland in the UK's internal market, and that's fundamental. It reflects the fundamental state uh, uh, sort of powers of the, the the UK. So none of that, none, nothing in the protocol affects that. Um, that's clear. I think I would distinguish, personally, I would distinguish that from um, you know, what we perceive, though others will, will tell me, what we perceive as a, you know, a high level of unease in, in, in significant parts of, of Northern Ireland, um, uh, in, across broad unionism, but more, you know, possibly more than that, about the way 
the protocol is working out, and that has con that has consequences for broader senses of identity um, uh, and the relationship for between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So I don't think that is necessarily a formal constitutional thing, but it's a real thing, and we, we pick it up in, in what's said, and that, that is what's at the core of the political problem that's behind the, uh, the current situation, and that's, that's what we've got to deal with. You know, if we're looking at polling, and I, I've certainly seen the poll you, you say, and it's a salutary one, there's no doubt, in terms of how we, we take it forward, mm. but the other... You know, the, the, I've also seen polling which shows there is a 50-50 uh, split, more or less, in public opinion about how, you know, whether the protocol is a desirable thing or not. And if, if you have a 50-50 division of opinion on something as fundamental as that, that makes it very hard to operate. And that is the, the situation that we're, we're in. Um, the, the protocol depends on a broader level of consent if it's going to work. And at the moment, we... You know that that doesn't seem that obvious, and therefore we've got to find a way of ensuring that we can get that that consent. And that that political problem seems to us at the core of the uh, the difficulties that we're trying to solve. I have many other questions I would like to ask, but uh, I, don't I, understand. I understand. Okay, Trevor, we'll move to yourself, please. Oh, yeah, thanks, Chair. Both of you are very welcome. Good to see you here. Um, I'm sorry to go back to dynamic alignment versus equivalence, but. Um, the, I think Doris Ross in one of your quotes here it said yes aspire to the highest possible standards in SPS and veterinary matters. Um, has there been a problem between UK and EU in the past over those standards? Has so, there been an instance where perhaps we have wanted to aspire to a higher standard than EU? Well, I mean, obviously we, you know, the, every EU. SBS law has, you know, we've had no choice about whether to implement it. We've been part of the debate that, that introduced the law and sometimes we supported it and, and sometimes we, we haven't. So I think, you know, we, we definitely aspire in the future to do different things in the broad agri-food area, I suppose. They're not necessarily always in SBS laws specifically, but, for, for example, on, on animal welfare, exports of animals. I think it's noticeable that, you know, the, the first change that came in after uh, the end of the year in agri-food rules was one that we brought in that, that um, uh, prohibited a particular plant product. I can't remember the name offhand, but... Um, uh, so the first change was actually us bringing in a, a higher standard, albeit in a you know very limited area. The EU is already, um, you know, has already changed its agri-food rules once uh, since the start of the year. There's another set of changes coming in in August. Uh, the, it has been widely noted, although it's not agri-food as such, that they're changing, planning to change food standards for. Uh, uh, for animal feed, you know, I think that's just natural. Some of these changes are going to to happen, but we absolutely are going to maintain high standards and high scientific rigor in the way we, you know, we take these things forward. That's just part of the game. But as a, I think you've said already, as a basic problem, a matter of sovereignty rather than the standards. So it it, I mean, it is you, you know the Brexit is a is a fundamental it, it is about sovereignty to to a large extent it's about the right to set uh, our own 
rules. And um, obviously, the difficulty with the protocol is that um, you know there are two different sort of jurisdictions as regards SBS rules, and that's why you know, that the very unusualness of that situation is why we have the consent. Uh, mechanism and why you need broad consent. But it is not an unusual thing in the world to have control of your own agri-food rules. I mean, it's, it's totally normal. It's not having control of them that's the abnormal thing. And that's why, you know, this current situation, which we, you know, we took on as part of the protocol, you know, has got to be managed in a sensible, proportionate, pragmatic way if it's going to be deliverable. Yes, thanks. The, it, it's hard to escape the possibility that, I mean, and standards can rise and standards can fall. Standards can be lowered for particular reasons. And when, when the UK does these trade deals around the world, I'm thinking particularly of the one that's uh, agreed in principle with Australia, where animal welfare standards are actually lower than ours are. And you could say that probably the same about chlorinated chicken coming from the States. Mm even Brazilian beef. I mean, there's a lot of vari variation and a lot of opposition. I mean, leaving aside the standards question, mm. competition comes into it as well. So uh, if, I'm not going to make an accusation here, but if I was to suggest that Britain wants the option to lower standards as well as to uh, heighten them, would that be a fair comment? Um, I don't think it would. Um, I, I, we, we'd be very clear that, uh, you know, in our manifesto in 2019 and uh, ever since, that we intend to maintain high standards in this this country, and we absolutely will, and animal welfare is, is kind of part of that. Um, I don't think animal welfare standards are quite as low in Australia as you'd suggest, but obviously each, each country comes to its, own, ours, its own views about that. Um, uh, but, but obviously, if you want to bring goods to this country, you've got to meet UK standards, and that's that's. I mean, every country is is the same. I think the reason why it matters and why it's a sovereignty question is, it is connected to trade uh, deals. It's not only connected to that, but it is connected to that. Um, and you know, it is very hard to ask the country to do a deal with us if our agri-food rules might change in future in a way that we can't foresee or control, in a way that might affect their trade. That, that's why it's important to have control, and that's, that, that is why this is a problem uh, as regards third country agreements. Just one more quick one, Chair. Um, you, you did say in your opening remarks that, um, that the UK had made major concessions to bring about the protocol agreement. Would, would you accept from me that the EU have made equivalent concessions, that they have, they have pushed <coughs> their boundaries considerably to accommodate the particular situation of Northern Ireland? I, I, I think both sides have um, you know, pushed, pushed the boundaries of what is, is normal in a relationship between two sort of jurisdictions to, to try and find a compromise in, in, in Northern Ireland that supports the, the peace process. I absolutely accept that. But I think the problem is that you know, what we thought was the, the right balance in 2019 has turned out that it isn't quite right because of events and because of reality since then. But, but absolutely, you know, it is, it is unusual for both sides. There's no doubt about that. Can I just add something there, Lord Foster? I think, um, I mean, as Lord Foster highlighted earlier on, the, the protocol and the terms of the protocol um, are the prism through which the EU rules apply. 
Um, and, and Lord Frost sort of cited a, a number of different bits there, and I think the protocol itself recognised that it is a unique solution for a unique situation. Um, I think what, what's happening in practice is that um, sometimes in, discussion, in discussions with the EU in terms of what they expect to be happening in practice, it's as if the protocol itself, the prism through which these EU rules apply, wasn't there. And the rules just apply in the, in, um, to, to goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in the same way as if it was any EU external border. That's that's very much what it feels like and sounds like in the conversations, and 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 I think the challenge is that that, that it, is that those those aspects of the protocol which are about reflecting the uniqueness of the solution and the uniqueness of the context in what happens in practice are, are, are forgotten. And I think what um, what we've been trying to do in the conversations is to get that the uniqueness. Uh, back into the back into the discussion because I think that's the best way that we find that balance, um, and I think in the in the context of um, the question of equivalence as well, this is one area where we have been putting forward um, ideas and options for a, a conversation that would, uh, yes, not align with any of the EU's existing precedents. Um, because we don't feel that the uniqueness of the situation should be bound by precedence for vet agreements. There are ways of having a science-based approach to looking at the effect of rules, establishing whether there is any actual risk in practice and, and acting on that basis. Well, I hope, hope we get there. Thanks very much for your Okay, we'll you. move next to Pat Sheehan. Pat? I'm a good chair. Uh, and thanks for coming along, David, and Rebecca also. You took your time. You got here in the end, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, First of all, there are a few myths going around about the protocol. Uh, I mean, one of them is that the, the population here is almost up in arms. And I suppose the subtext of your commentary thus far has been that there are major societal problems that need to be resolved. And there's also a suggestion that there are major disruption to the supply chains. And that's not the case. The shelves in the supermarkets are fully stacked uh, and supply chains are being reorientated. So there are opportunities there for local businesses here. And um, I suppose the, uh, one of our issues with all of this is that Given that the EU has resolved a number of issues recently around medicines, around guide dogs, the green card for insurance and so on, um, that this hasn't been acknowledged fully by the UK government uh, and, and, and that's an issue that might help resolve some of the tensions that do exist here. But um, would you agree with me? that the fact that we here uh, are going to have access to the UK government uh, and the EU single market can only benefit the economy here. So, I mean, it was certainly the intention when we agreed the protocol that, uh, you know, we should try and find that, that sort of balance and that, that sort of access um, was important to the, uh, the success of the agreement. So I think the problem is that we, we don't have that balance and the you know, the free flow of goods and what goes with it, you know, is not the same from Great Britain to Northern Ireland as it is um, north-south from Northern Ireland to, to Ireland. And, of course, it was never going to be exactly the same 
but but what we've got at the moment is a situation that's that's out of balance it seems to us where you know you're you're right in one sense that um you know shelves are not empty here that's that's obvious but nevertheless there there is an adjustment of supply chains going on there is trade diversion you know i've spoken to to companies here who who can't get their usual supplies in from their usual suppliers in GB and have gone elsewhere. And that's, that is persuasive that there is a problem that didn't exist before. Now, I don't think it's a problem that is impossible to be to resolve. I think it's a problem that, that is, is very possible to, to resolve with, with goodwill and to, to put the balance back, to, back together again. Um, but it, it does have to be done. And uh, you know the the existence of this problem has to be taken seriously in a way that um, I don't feel it has been entirely uh, in the discussions I've had with the, the EU so far. As and Rebecca was suggesting that that too in her comment. Um, I don't think final final comment. I don't think it's true to say that um, the EU has resolved problems like guide dogs or um, animal tagging of animals and so on and their, their very welcome suggestion last week that they were you know they were, they were going to put forward solutions unfortunately we, we haven't had those solutions we don't actually know what they are so I can't tell whether they solve the problems or or not um, so I you know I hope we'll get something soon uh, and if they do solve them so much the better but you know we do have to talk about them it isn't enough for uh, just to to come out at a press conference and say we've got a solution and expect that that will end the discussion. That's the start of the discussion, uh, not the end to it. In all those areas, we have put forward our own solutions. We've put forward papers, uh, many of which, most of which actually we haven't had a reaction to. Um, and, you know, we've got to have a better quality of discussion than that if we're going to resolve this, this problem. The, 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 the political reality of this situation has got to be taken seriously in the discussions we have with the EU and at the moment I don't feel that's happening entirely. Uh, thanks for that uh, and you've acknowledged that there isn't a constitutional issue that there's in your mind there's a political problem. Now I'm saying to you it's been completely overblown and that the vast majority of businesses and the farmers support the protocol. Uh, and on the issue of goods coming from uh, across the water to here, I mean, if people can't get Cumberland sausages here, they'll certainly be able to get local sausages. And, and, and that's good for local businesses here. Would you not agree with me? And, that's, and that was what was always going to happen in the context of this, that there was going to be a reorientation of supply lines. Businesses were going to find new markets and new opportunities. Thanks. Mm. Well, um, I... I on the basis of the um, uh, the Northern Irish sausages I've had uh, on my various visits here, I, I certainly agree with you. The local product is 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 just as good, but it, but obviously that's not really the the point. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the point is that um, uh, you know the opportunities have changed, and the opportunities uh, have disappeared for one producer and yes may have opened up for another but but that that wasn't what we were were trying to achieve here i think you know business can speak for itself and does speak for itself very very vigorously and i don't 
you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what business thinks, because you'll know uh, as well or better as I do. All I can say is that um, I think business values the legal certainty of having um, an agreement between us and the EU, and they value, you know, being able to proceed by consensus if we can. Uh, and I think that's absolutely reasonable and normal for, for business wherever I've, I've met it. But I, I, I don't think I've met a representative of business community or um, uh, a, a, a leader of a business who has said, this is absolutely fine, there is absolutely no problem with it, there are no difficulties of any kind. Some do very significantly downplay the difficulties, and obviously it does depend what your business is. But I would say almost without exception, almost, People point to the difficulties in moving goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, the delays, uh, the complexity with that. For some businesses, that's, that's extremely important. For some, obviously, it's only a, a small part of what they do. But it, it's, it's unusual for that not to be mentioned as an aspect of the protocol that, that could be improved. And I, I do think that can't be dismissed when we're trying to find the, the way forward here. And just finally, I'm glad to say you're talking about the protocol, the protocol being improved rather than done away with. Thank you. Thanks. So, or just on just on that final point, just just repeat. You know, we we've said there always will be the need for a, a treaty relationship between us and the EU, covering Northern Ireland. I mean, I think that that is that is self-evident, and we wouldn't seek to deny it. Obviously, it's the content that's the uh, the, the thing that needs talking about. David, we got. 46 minutes into an hour-long session before we mentioned sausages, so I think you're at least hopefully impressed by that. But uh, well done, Pat, at getting that accolade for today's meeting. We're going to pass now to online. We have uh, Diane Dodds, who's joining us, sir, and we pass over to yourself, Diane, for some questions. We have about 12 minutes. I'm not, no pressure there, but just we have two more as well. But we pass over to yourself. Um, thank you and uh, good afternoon, Lord Frost, and I apologise that I was not able to be with you uh, in person. I have some other duties today. Um, Lord Frost, you mentioned at the start of your uh, uh, presentation um, that the protocol uh, indicated that we had to have some significant compromises from the UK government in that you agreed to apply EU law to part of the United Kingdom and that you uh, agreed um, to barriers within the internal market of the United Kingdom. Those are quite astonishing concessions in the first place. Do you now agree with the Prime Minister's sentiments in his evidence uh, to MPs earlier this week that it was unfortunate and probably a mistake to give Brussels such leverage over the internal market of the United Kingdom uh, and its trading arrangements? through the protocol? So I think what the, the PM was saying was the, uh, he was uh, alluding to the fact that um, a feature of the concessions that we made about the controlling goods and applying law is that the ultimate authority uh, for the way that's applied is the EU institutions and the Court of Justice. Uh, and that is, you know, that is obviously even more unusual in some ways uh, to, to allow continued jurisdiction uh, of those institutions uh, in parts of the, the UK. Um, you know, it obviously is possible to uh, you know, control goods 
moving from one part of the UK to another without the European Court of Justice, you know, being the ultimate arbiter in that. Uh, that was uh, what the EU insisted on at the time. But it's, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be part of it if uh, uh, if we if we if we'd done this differently. And I think part of the you know, the difficulty we've got with this is that, um, as the Prime Minister said, uh, you know, the, the rules are not in our hands. You know, it, it is not possible to have a, a sort of normal debate amongst equals about the best way of satisfying the needs of, of both sides because we're, we're acting in this area under the legal authority of one party to the treaty, and that, that's... That's quite unusual, and it obviously does affect the the tone and balance of the discussions that we we have. And um, I think that's probably what the the prime minister was kind of alluding to when he he made that comment. So um, I take it from that, Lord Frost, that it actually was a mistake um, to uh, allow such interference in the UK's internal market and the jurisdiction of a court outside of the United Kingdom within the UK's internal market. Um, it's an astonishing position for a Conservative and Unionist government to get itself into. Can I go on to uh, another element of this, which I think is massively important um, for Northern Ireland, and that is the issue of democratic accountability and consent. You obviously will be aware that you are in a Northern Ireland Assembly today where not one unionist party or not one unionist MLA within that assembly supports the protocol. Now, the chair may call us doomsters or whatever he wants to do, but respectfully and democratically, that is an, a, a shocking indictment of where we have now come. What are you going to do to restore democratic accountability in Northern Ireland? We will be governed by laws over which we have no democratic accountability. No MLA, no MP um, will have any say in the laws relating to agri-food, um, in the laws relating to goods, um, and so on. So what are you going to do to restore democratic accountability? And in relation to the issue of consent, consent in Northern Ireland as defined by the Belfast Agreement, means consent from both communities. You and the EU have overridden that in the protocol and now uh, want majority rule. What are you going to do to restore the balance of consent? So um, there's a lot in that, that question. Uh, and Chair, I don't mind running over a little bit if we, if we need to, to make sure everyone gets say and deal with the questions. Before answering your, your questions, can I just come back to this, this point about the court uh, and the, the, the way that, that works? I think, um, you know, was it a mistake or not? I think there are, um, you know, just because you have the power to settle a dispute in a court doesn't mean you have to use it. I mean, there are two mechanisms for solving discussions in the protocol. There's an arbitration process and there's a court process, and they are overlap uh, to some extent. Um, and I think it, you know, just because you have the power to impose doesn't make imposing something the right thing to do. Sometimes it can be better to proceed by discussion and 
and agreement. And I think, you know, the fact that the EU immediately began a legal process in March for a very sort of low-level operational uh, adjustments to one or two features of the way the protocol works, you know, doesn't doesn't help. Um, I think there's there's you know the 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 reason the court is there in in our mind at least at the time is that you know we are operating EU law you know in EU doctrine the court is the ultimate arbiter of what that law means and therefore you know we 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 kind of accept that's part of their their doctrine that doesn't make it sensible to bring every dispute ultimately to an infractions process and the European Court of Justice and behave uh, with us when we raise problems in a way that that sort of reflects that. I think there's, you know, there are other ways of doing these things that are consistent with that framework, and we're not we're not quite seeing that. And if if we could find ways of doing that, that would be, I think, a significant improvement. Um, on your questions about democratic accountability, um, I mean, I. I you know, I have a good deal of sympathy with with what you say. You know, we we knew this is this is um, democratically extremely difficult uh, imposition of another party's law, um, even if it is in as we saw it and see it in the wider goal of protecting Belfast Good Friday Agreement, the peace process, uh, the achievements that have been made so far. Um, you know, that, that is a, a very important wider goal that justifies things. But nevertheless, uh, you know, it is pretty unusual to have laws, uh, you know, set by an outside uh, entity. And um, the consent mechanism um, is, uh, you know, is, is an albeit imperfect way of allowing the institutions here to say, uh, you know, looking at all these balances, it's working tolerably, or looking at all these balances, it's not working tolerably, and we have to find a solution. So that that um, you know that mechanism is is in, is I think fundamental to you know the workability of the arrangements. And if if you know if you don't have a, a sort of fairly broad consent at every at most points. You know, this is not some, simply something about four years' time. You need to have broad consensus to make these arrangements workable uh, between now and then as well. And you know, that's why it worries us so much that we don't, don't have it. So I don't have a good answer to your question because I think it is, it is extremely problematic and it's only justified by the wider purpose of the protocol. And that's why it, it troubles us so much that you know, it's operated in a way which, which seems to be undermining that purpose now. Chair, can I just uh, very, very quickly follow that up? I mean, I, I do think, Lord Frost, that um, if you uphold the Belfast Agreement, and indeed uh, the, the Commission uh, indicate this as well, uh, then uh, the idea that consent should not be drawn from both communities should be revisited as well, not just ongoing consent, as you talk about in, in your answer to me. There are just a couple of other things that I think really important, maybe we haven't highlighted today. This morning, I listened um, to a representative from the Jewish community in Northern Ireland on the radio explaining how um, the rules uh, on bringing in chilled meats to Northern Ireland will impact on their ability to get kosher product. Um, surely it's a fundamental right that we must protect 
um, the Jewish community their ability to get the product that they need into Northern Ireland um, and that this is should be uppermost in the mind of the government as we go forward. And the other uh, area that I, and we haven't strayed into this because it's relatively newly introduced to the House of Commons, but I think this is an area where we will have ongoing difficulties with uh, the protocol for some time to come. Um, government has just introduced a subsidy control bill um, to the House of Commons, and that will control competition law and uh, subsidies that can or cannot be made uh, to uh, firms and, and throughout the United Kingdom. But obviously, under Article 10 of the protocol, it will not apply to Northern Ireland um, in the area of goods, agri-food, etc. That means potentially that Northern Ireland firms will not have access to the same rules, uh, whether they are relaxed or more stringent, um, in future that firms in the rest of GB. That will leave our companies here potentially uncompetitive. What will you do to resolve that issue? Um, so let me take the two questions in order. Um, I mean, obviously, I hugely share your concern. We all do on the the, the question of the the Jewish community in in Northern Ireland, and um, you know, none of the alternative ways of dealing with this problem seem remotely satisfactory. I mean, I, I like to think that you know the 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 EU will, in fact. Uh, resolve this problem with us in a consensual way for for very obvious reasons now that it's out there on the the table as a as a problem so um, I you know I'll be very surprised frankly if we can't because uh, it's such an obvious thing where uh, we need to find a, a pragmatic solution but but um, you know although it, it has been in the background for some time, it's only now emerged as an issue, and I'm sure we'll want to talk about that with um, the EU uh, rapidly. Um, on the um, subsidy control issue, I mean, this is an interesting and complex problem because obviously, um, you know, as has been pointed out, one of the features of the protocol is that if you're a, a business trading goods in Northern Ireland, you have access to the whole of the, the single market, and that is sort of you know, presented as an advantage of the, the protocol. Um, it, it, so I, I do kind of understand the, the logic in a way that says uh, you have to look at that when you're taking state aid decisions, uh, the fact that, you know, there's a wider entity involved here. You know, whether we've got the right, you know, whether the, the, the solutions in the protocol is the right one remains, remains to be tested, I think. Um, we did reach an agreement with the EU in December that um, you know, the provisions of the protocol would only be applied um, to companies you know, where, where there was a very clear connection with Northern Ireland and not a trivial one. The, the, the EU put out guidance in January which didn't seem consistent with that and we've, we've challenged that but it's still out there. Um, so I think it remains to be tested in practice, you know, whether whether they're going to implement this in a, a sort of reasonable and pragmatic way um, or not. And it is, of course, another area where the court and the institutions stand ultimately behind decisions that are taken, and that's, that's the problem. So it remains to be tested. We've now got a subsidy control bill, hopefully act soon, and we will have a good framework, and perhaps that will be reassuring to, to the EU when, we, when it's in place. 
Okay, I'm going to pass over to Emma Sheeran now. Thank you very much, Chair, and thanks to you both for joining us this afternoon. Um, we know it's already been outlined by others today that Brexit was not supported by a majority of the people in the north of Ireland, and we know now that Brexit only arose because of what was effectively a civil war within the Tory party. And it led to a rising, it exposed, and in many parts was caused by a very nasty undercurrent of xenophobia and racism within elements of English nationalism. The same sort of ideology that gave us hostile environment, that gave us the terms of the EUSS, which concluded last week. And we have had the same sort of negativity from a minority in the North here since the onset of Brexit at the beginning of the year. We have had political unionism align themselves with masked men on the street, inciting violence, basically um, creating a situation from a trade agreement that was a threat to their identity and nationality which is not the case as outlined by yourself. We're now in the weekend of the 12th. Will you take this opportunity to condemn in totality any threat of violence or incitement of violence on the streets in the north? So um, I, um, obviously I don't quite agree with your characterization of, uh, of Brexit and how we, we got here and, uh, and so on, but that's, that's sort of water under the bridge now. Obviously, um, we we don't want violence. Uh, obviously, we condemn violence. We condemn incitement to violence. That is that is wrong. Um, we think there should be calm and that these problems should be resolved um, politically. Um, but but what we are seeing on the streets in Northern Ireland in terms of the the protests and so on is a you know seems to me to be a a manifestation of you know quite a lot of popular discontent about the the protocol and you know peaceful protest is a is a perfectly legitimate right in this country and um, where people don't don't support things they they protest about it but 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 obviously nobody wants violence nobody encourages that and and absolutely you know we we don't want to go back there in that direction in any way Chair, if I can just for clarification then, so you refer to peaceful protests. We've had mass men on the streets. We've had threats of violence. We have situations now across parts of Belfast where we have vulnerable residents and elderly people asking for chickenware in front of their houses because of bonfires that they're scared are going to damage their homes. Will you condemn those who are standing with loyalists on the street talking about violence over a protocol which you have already acknowledged does not change the constitutional position much as I would wish that it would, of the North of Ireland within the UK. So, um, I mean, as I understand it, um, it's, it's illegal to commit acts of violence and it's illegal to encourage others to do so. So, obviously, I, I condemn that. That is, that, is, that is obvious. It wasn't to me. Thank you very much. Okay. Christopher. Thank you, and uh, thank you for your evidence thus far. Um, I appreciate, Mr Chairman, that some may choose to wish that those of us who are opposed to the protocol didn't exist, but we do exist, and we're one of the major political traditions in this place, and we deserve to be treated with respect, not dismissed as doomsters or gloomsters. I am articulating the legitimately held concerns of my constituents. How can you tell me that there has been no constitutional change in the status of Northern Ireland when laws made by foreign powers and implemented and overseen by foreign courts will apply here, but they will not apply 
in the rest of the country of which I am a citizen. You describe that situation as pretty unusual. It's not pretty unusual. It's a constitutional outrage. So I don't think I've got much to add to what I, to what I said earlier, and I wouldn't want um, anything I say to be interpreted as a comment on the ongoing uh, legal proceedings, because I, I, I do think it would be wrong to, to, to prejudge those. Um, I think all I can do is, is, is repeat that um, you know, nothing in the protocol, the protocol is, is clear that um, uh, you know, it, it, it does not um, affect uh, Northern Ireland's position as part of the UK or as part of the Customs Territory or as part of the, the internal market. That's on the, the, the face of the protocol. Um, and that is the, that, that's the reality of the, the situation. But, but as I say, there is a court case going on on this subject. And I, I, don't want, I don't think this is the right place to debate the, um, the legal arguments that are going to be surfaced there um, in a very high forum, no doubt, uh, relatively soon. Uh, can I quote to you the noble lord, Lord Barwell, who said recently, it's tempting to believe that despite all of the warnings, the government underestimated the effect of the protocol. But I'm pretty sure that this is not true. They knew it was a bad idea, but agreed to it to get Brexit done, intending to wriggle out of it later on. Michael Gove negotiated a dog's breakfast of a deal, and you've been left to clean up the mess, haven't you? So um, I saw those comments by, by Lord Barwell. Um, uh, I obviously um, we uh, intend to implement what we we sign up to, and it's the um, the fact of implementation that is that is causing the problem. Um, I would say that it was the inheritance that we inherited from the previous uh, government and the previous negotiating team that has been a significant part of the difficulty and. The reason that the protocol is shaped as it is 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 because we, you know, we had a particular inheritance from the the previous team who could not get their deal uh, rightly, in my view, through through Parliament, and unfortunately, uh, we were not able to go back to scratch and do things in a different way. And I think, uh, you know, the previous team are to a a very large degree responsible for. You know some of the infelicities in this protocol and the withdrawal agreement that uh, you know we we might be better without, but unfortunately uh, we we are where we are. Why would applying systems designed for international trade to a highly integrated domestic market have not produced anything other than difficulties? Oh, well, that's exactly the the problem, and uh, I, I, that's why the the balancing provisions in the protocol. You know, was so important, and why we put so, so much reliance on them when we, when we agreed them. Um, uh, you know, it, it 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 isn't an international border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I mean, the the, the protocol is absolutely clear about that. Um, it's a means of controlling goods uh, for wider purposes, um, and if you treat it as if it were an international border with a normal implementation of the EU Customs Code. Yeah, there'll obviously be a problem. Goods, goods don't move into Northern Ireland in containers on big ships. They come, you know, in small quantities, you know, sort of packaged up in small ways in the back of uh, HGVs. And you have to have systems that are capable of, of dealing with that. And, you know, most international trade isn't quite like that. You, ac you, accept, you accept for a country of our size and a border of that nature, there's a disproportionate, completely over-the-top amount of checks presently taking place? 
So, I mean, 20% of all the, the, the processes in, in the EU are taking place between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and obviously that, that makes no sense. And, you know, the, the reason that's the situation is because we're trying to apply rules designed for one situation to another situation. And, you know, I, it, it, it makes no sense. We, we have to find a better way of doing that in everybody's interest. Do you think the, the brutal implementation of border checks that you've mentioned, the totally disproportionate implementation of border checks is aimed at strong-arming the United Kingdom government into an SPS agreement? I mean, I think there are... I think the, the basic answer is no. I've no doubt that there are some, you know, within EU structures who, who still see things like this and have not moved on from the, the referendum. I think more that we're, what we're seeing is that the EU... You know, it, it, it comes to decisions with, you know, laboriously and with great pain. Uh, it incorporates them in law and it's then very reluctant to sort of move from them or reinvent them in ways that are, are tailored. And I think, we're, to be honest, I think we're more seeing those instincts than we are anything else. But, but obviously there's, there's probably a range of opinion on this question, if you ask uh, EU officials. One final, one final point. Um, I, like you, absolutely condemn violence or the threat of violence, and unlike other parties, I've always done it. Um, can I ask you, when the DUP outlined our concerns about Theresa May's sea border, we were ignored. We outlined our concerns now about Michael Gove's sea border. Can I ask, will you, why should the unionist community believe that you're listening to them now? Well, I think our actions are, are showing that we are, you know, listening to the concerns that, you know, as far as we can tell, clearly exist about the way that uh, this is working. You know, I repeat, you know, violence is, is wrong and we condemn it and encouraging violence is wrong and we, we condemn it. Um, um, but the problem that we face at the moment is on the protocol is a political one and an economic one and a practical one, and those problems should be resolved in that way, uh, and that's what we're trying to do. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Okay. Um, David and Rebecca, thank you very much. That concludes the, the questions. I think given the, the depth of the issue and the various range of views that there is just in this room, we could probably talk all evening. I know we're often accused of not getting into enough depth in our questions, but sometimes in two or three questions you don't get an opportunity to be able to, to, to drill down into the level of detail that we would like to. And I hope maybe on the back of that you might um, take up if we could offer to meet with you maybe later in the year again, uh, virtual if, if needs be, and if you're visiting again uh, and it works, that would be uh, useful just to continue with that. You, you've, made, um, you've clarified a number of issues today, which I hope uh, can be amplified out into the community, that we maintain the cool heads all round, especially at this time of year, um, to make sure that we don't see violence on our street, but that we see uh, within the negotiations some settlement and some practical outcomes that works for, for everyone. But thank you very much for your attendance today, and we wish you all the best with your work. Sir, excuse me. Thank you. Would you mind if I made a very short contribution? It's not even a question. Uh, in relation to the tensions that are believed to exist here, you know, and the population being exercised about the the protocol. There was a protest called several weeks ago uh, against the Irish Sea border, and there were more press photographers turned up to that protest than protesters. So that's an indication of just how much overblown this uh, issue about tension within the community and so on is. 
So I hope you leave you with some facts uh, about that. I actually thought you were going to get an invite to the West Belfast constituency <laughs> there for a tour, but uh, it was a comment. Thank you. Um, um, noted. Uh, and, Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Of course, you know, I'm very happy to try and find time later on. And Sarah Ann will, will, will leave you back there. I know you're heading back to the airport, but thank you very much indeed. Thank Thanks you. very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think I know. Back to that bit of a Many papers here today. I, I did just uh, omit to note George Robinson's apology at the start. He, okay. he did say that he would like to be here, but unfortunately, he, he's not able to be here today. So um, we, we we note that. Um, there are a few items. We're taking the opportunity to run through a few items of correspondence while we're all here before we all rush off on a Friday afternoon. Uh, first of all, can I just ask members maybe to note the draft minutes uh, item three? They're on page. 123 of the meeting pack. Are members happy of that being a, a minute of the meeting on the 30th of June? Yep. Okay. Um, item four is correspondence. There are 13 items of correspondence on pages 133 to 243 in the meeting pack. Um, on item 4.9, which is at page 201, there's correspondence from the Commission for Victims and Survivors asking to brief the committee on its work. Given that there is no uh, commissioner in place at the moment, um, we maybe think that just as a suggestion, it would be good to have the victims and survivors service maybe to come up and, and brief us. Would members be agreeable with that? Yes. Okay, that can be organised then. Um, um, that's us then. From, uh, oh, yes, um, there is agreement. There is a press release on uh, which is on page 241 of the pack for today's meeting. Would members be happy with that? Okay. Sure, everybody got to that one in the pack as well. <laughs> Every word. Uh, item six is the forward work program, which is on page 246 of the meeting pack. Are members happy to note that? Yep. Okay, any other business? Yep. Uh, members, can I wish you all well? I think recess starts in about an hour and a half's time for people. I know everybody will be very busy back in their constituencies over the summer period, but can I wish everybody well? I hope that everybody does get a break uh, and get some rest and relaxation and time with families uh, and look forward to seeing everybody refreshed and back and keen in September time. So all the best, and we'll conclude the meeting. Thank you. Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly.